Now we're coming again to our series on Through the Bible, book by book. It's been a long time since I've asked you how you're doing on reading along with you, and I'm almost afraid to ask anymore, <laughs> because I think many of you have fallen by the way, but we ha- because we've ha- moved along rather rapidly as we've come through the books of the Bible, one by one. But now we come to the epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, his first letter to the Corinthian church. This is a very, very important letter for us because there's no letter that so thoroughly captures the problems that we face as moderns living in this modern age as the epistle, the first epistle to the Corinthians. That was because, of course, Corinth was the most American city in the New Testament. It was the capital of uh, pleasure in the Roman Empire. It was a city, a resort city. You who remember your geography know it was located on the Peloponnesian Peninsula. That's hard to say. And I've always suspected that the church there in Corinth was called the Peninsula Bible Church. (laughs) It was certainly true that the conditions under which it lived were, were very much like the conditions under which we live. Or may I put that the other way? The conditions under which we live today are Corinthian conditions. This was a beautiful city, Corinth was, a city of, of palms and loveliness, of beautiful buildings. It was uh, uh, the center of pleasure in the whole of the empire and... Uh, it uh, was devoted to the pursuit of, of two things, the pursuit of, of pleasure, largely passion, and of wisdom. It was a Greek city, and the inhabitants of this city loved to philosophize, and they were given to what Paul calls the wisdom of words, so that the two major forces that were active in this city that created the atmosphere in which the Corinthian church had to live were these, intellectualism and sensualism. This was a city devoted to the worship of the goddess sex. That's why I speak of it as uh, so like modern conditions today. In the city of Corinth, there was a temple that was dedicated to the goddess of love, the Greek goddess Aphrodite. And... Part of the worship of the Greek goddess was the performance of certain religious ceremonies that involved sexual relationships. Therefore, the priestesses of this temple were really temple prostitutes, and there were some 10,000 of them attached to the temple. Therefore, the city was openly given over to the practice of licentiousness, and it was regarded as a normal, proper part of, of life. No one ever thought twice about it. If we think that we're living under conditions where sensualism is rampant and the worship of sex is widespread, it does not yet approach the the conditions of the Christians who had to live in Corinth. They were continually confronted with this on every side, and it was accepted widely in the city, as I've said, as a perfectly proper way of life. Furthermore, they were continually assaulted by the uh, 
by the doctrines and dogmas and ideas of men following the great philosophers. This city was the heir of the great thinkers of the golden age of Greece. Socrates and Plato and Aristotle all had their followers within the city of Corinth. And as in every Greek city, they loved to gather in the public plazas and debate these issues endlessly so that they were people given over to the love of wisdom. Now in this city, the Apostle Paul had come. And you remember the story from the book of Acts. He'd come down through Thessalonica and had been driven out of that city by an uprising of the Jews against him, had run, gone for a brief time to the little city of Berea, and then had come down into Athens. And there alone in Athens, as he walked about the city, he noted the many temples and finally was taken up and preached to the Athenians on Mars Hill, and finally left Athens and came down across the little isthmus into Corinth. And there he stayed for a period of about a year and a half or two years, preaching the gospel and making tents for a living. He found a couple who had come from Rome named Apollos and Priscilla, or, or rather, uh, it's not Apollos, what is it? Huh? Aquila, thank you. I knew that was wrong, but I couldn't think of the right one. Aquila and Priscilla. And uh, there, uh, and he, uh, they too were tent makers, and he stayed with them and led them to Christ and uh, formed a church in their home. And gradually the gospel spread throughout the city, and the church was formed, and many of the Corinthians were told, hearing, believed, and were baptized and became members of this church. Now that was the church to which Paul wrote this letter. And as you read this letter, you see that it was a church in trouble. It was the, it, it was the most, the biggest problem church in the New Testament. There were a great many things wrong about it. But there were some things that were right too. And as Paul began his letter to them, he recognizes some of these things that were right. First, he calls them saints. He says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. And then his eyes lift to the horizon uh, of uh, both uh, geography and time, and he, he sees even us, and he says, together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And then his usual greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he begins to talk about some of the things that constituted these people Christians. The great themes of our Christian faith. The fact that they had received Christ by faith and by grace had entered into a new life and had been enriched by him and had found Christ. And there was much that he had to commend this church for in the opening letter, uh, the opening verses of this letter. But in verse 9, he comes to what is the key to the entire letter. And if you never remember anything else of 1 Corinthians, at least remember this verse. Because everything in this letter is built around this verse. 1 Corinthians 1.9 God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's the central thing in the Christian life. We're called to share the life of the Son of God. That's what fellowship is. It's sharing together. 
fellowship with anyone is a sharing time. And uh, this is what God has called us to. And he puts that first in this letter in order that he might call the attention of these Christians to that which was lacking in their experience. And everything in the letter gathers about this verse. You'll find that the letter falls into two major divisions. There's, first of all, a great section dealing with what we might call the carnalities. That takes you from chapter 1 through chapter 11. Then there's a a closing section from chapter 12 through chapter 16 that deals with what Paul himself calls the spiritualities. The carnalities versus the spiritualities. The carnalities is everything that was wrong with this church. The spiritualities is what they needed to correct it. And as you read this letter through, you'll see that all the carnalities are what we suffer from today, in principle at least. And the spiritualities are what we desperately need to set our lives right. Therefore, this church is especially written to those who live in a sex-saturated, wisdom-loving atmosphere and are trying to live as Christians in the midst of all the pressures that come constantly upon us from these two areas. That's why I love to call this the first letter of Paul to the Californians. And uh, if we uh, read it that way, we'll certainly see how apt it is. In this first section now, dealing with the, the church in trouble, the carnalities, the things that made for uh, problems, there are three major areas that he deals with. There are, first of all, the problem of divisions. And then there were the pro- the, was the problem of scandals in the church. And finally, he took up su- certain questions that they had written to him about. Questions that were troubling them. And all these are uh, brought together under the major heading of, of the carnalities, the things that were troubling the church. The first thing is this matter of divisions. And the problem that was causing the divisions was the fact that the spirit of the city had come into the church. There are those today that are telling us that the need in the church today is to capture again the spirit of the age in which we live. There could be absolutely nothing further from the truth than that. The one thing that the church must never do is to capture the spirit of the age. The job of the church is to correct the spirit of the age. And when a church begins to reflect the spirit of the age in which it lives, it immediately loses its power. That is what had happened to the church at Corinth. They were allowing all these divisions over the philosophies of men to come into the church. And they were following men within the church. And they'd chosen up certain religious leaders who, uh, uh, around whom they were gathering in little factions and saying that so-and-so was better than so-and-so and the insights of this man were better than that man. And they were forming little sects and divisions and schisms within the church. Now, these men, uh, these divisions were largely built around certain insights that they felt each man contributed And Paul uses uh, certain names here to indicate what he means. Some were following Peter, some Apollos, some were gathering about his name, Paul, and some, a little exclusive group, said that they were the, the purest of all. They were following Christ and Christ only. 
and they were the worst troublemakers of all. But uh, the problem was, you see, they were all thinking that every man's special bit of insight represented a superior view to another's. And they were doing exactly what the people out in the city were doing, dividing up over the views of men. Now, Paul answers this with a tremendous word in which he shows that the wisdom of men is of no avail. He sets it aside completely, and he says that in the church, these insights of men are always partial and untrustworthy in, in to a great degree, and that they never will learn anything until they give themselves to the wisdom of God. The world, he says, by wisdom does not know God. And they never get to the heart of their problems by trying to pursue the insights of secular writers. Now, that's still true today. The church will never solve its problems as long as it constantly pursues after this writer and that writer and this man and that speaker and thinks that it will gather from the... Uh, from the efforts of men to accumulate knowledge, the insights it needs to understand its problems. The apostle says it's impossible that we can ever arrive at a solution to our needs on this level because there's something vitally missing. And that missing element is the life of the spirit in man. Without this, he can never solve all the riddles of life. But this comes by the word of the cross. And so the apostle answers these schisms and factions and divisions by opposing to it the word of the cross, the, the word which presents the cross of Christ as that instrument by which God cuts off all human wisdom, not as being worthless in its, in its own narrow uh, realm, but as being useless as far as solving the major problems of God, uh, of man. And when we understand this, we realize that we never begin to learn until we first learn that we don't know anything. When we come to uh, appreciate the word of the cross, we understand that in the cross of Jesus Christ, God took his own son, now become man like us, and uh, identified with us in every way and nailed him up to die as being useless as far as solving any of the problems of mankind is concerned. That's the word of the cross. That's why it looks so foolish to the natural man. That's why it proceeds on a totally different principle than the wisdom of the world. And when we accept that, the apostle says, then we'll begin to have discover that true, secret, hidden wisdom which unfolds little by little the answer to the problems of life. And we begin to understand ourselves and to see why this world is what it is and where it's heading and why all the confusion and the difficulties and the problems. As the wisdom of God, the deep things of God, the hidden wisdom which God has hidden in Christ is unfolded to us through the teaching of the Spirit by the Word of God. It's a wonderful section. And Paul says, I'm not going to waste any time at all arguing with you about Socrates or Plato or Aristotle or any of the other wisdom of men. They have their place. 
but not when it comes to solving the deep-seated problems of human nature. There's only one wisdom that can touch it, and that's the word of the cross. So that this becomes one of the mightiest answers of all time to the intellectualism that constantly hounds the Christian church and attempts to undermine it, a false intellectualism. I mean by that that the Word of God never uh, never attempts to set aside or call worthless the pursuit of knowledge. God intends men to learn things. That's what we're here for. But it must be knowledge based upon a right beginning. And we're called back to the principles set forth in the Old Testament. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's where we begin. Now, Paul goes on here to show that the true reason for their divisions was therefore not uh, what they thought to be differences of human points of view, but rather it was carnality, the love of the flesh for being puffed up and for finding itself uh, idolized and followed. And they were, they were satisfying this, the flesh at work. This was their problem. And Paul says, as long as that's at work, you'll remain babes. You'll never grow. The word of the cross must come in and cut off the flesh before you'll ever begin to grow. And as long as this keeps on, you'll find yourself constantly involved in all little squabbles and bickerings and and divisions and schisms over this person or that person or this idea or that idea. And you can live your whole Christian life on this basis, he says, But one of these days you're going to come to the end and the testing, the analysis of what your life has been worth. And in that day you'll see that if you've been living in the flesh, it all is wood, hay, and stubble and is burned up, completely worthless. And your life, except for the fact that you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, is a wasted enterprise. It's possible, even in the religious realm, he indicates, to gain the approval of men and to be accepted as quite a figure uh, in the church and to to, uh, enjoy the favor of, of those, of others, and the prestige that comes from position. And you can live your life on this basis. But he said, when you come to the end, you'll discover that the the absolutely relentless judging of God has not been impressed in the least degree by that which originates from anything else but the work of the Spirit of God in you. It has to be the Spirit and not the flesh. Now he turns from that to the matter of the scandals that were occurring in this church. And these were the effects of the divisions, of course. There was, first of all, an intolerable case of sexual immorality in the church that was openly being... uh, uh, regarded with uh, a a considerable degree of acceptance and toleration. And he says, this is absolutely wrong, chapters 5 and 6. He says, you must deal with this. Wherever sin breaks out openly like this, and it is not repented of, then the church must act in discipline. And he scolds these leaders for not uh, moving on this, not acting to bring this to the... Uh, before the the judging of the church and to set aside this iniquity that was eating away at their ranks. 
Here's another place where, as you can see, the church is widely departing from this today. It's almost uh, frightening to see how certain leaders in the church are now openly advocating sexual immoralities. And certain uh, of the uh, pastors and leaders in various ways, young people, youth groups within the church, are openly encouraging young people to uh, sleep together and to live together. Now, this letter is comes out of an atmosphere where that was widely accepted within the city as the normal way of life. But within the church, it is absolutely set aside as being totally incongruous with the Christian profession because it was a violation of the of, of the human, uh, uh, of the humanity of the individuals involved. And the love of God burned in zealous judgment against this because it was destroying and would destroy those involved in it. And that's why the apostle speaks in such burning words concerning this matter. Chapters 5 and 6 both deal with this matter of immorality. And he points out that the defense of the Christian must not be any moral standards outside himself. It's not thou shalt and thou shalt not that keeps young people or older people free from sexual problems and pressures, wrongs in this way. But rather it's the recognition that their bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit. That the Son of God himself dwells in us. And we're never out of his presence. That everywhere we go, he goes with us and is in us. And in that sense, there's never a moment but what we're walking constantly and everything we're doing is done in the presence of the Son of God himself. Now, it's that that keeps a young person free from the pressures that come. Then, beginning with chapter 7, you'll notice he turns to the questions that they wrote to him about. Verse 1, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And they wrote about... Uh, four major problems. First, a question about marriage. They wrote to the apostle as to whether it was right to be married in view of the pressures that were around them and perhaps the opportunity to give themselves to the service of God in an ascetic life. And the, though Paul himself was not married, nevertheless, he told them in this section that it's best, it, it's good, he says, for a husband uh, for a man and woman to be married, that marriage is, is, is a perfectly proper way of life. And uh, because of the temptation to immorality, he says, it's each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. That was in view of the Corinthian conditions. Then he shows them that it's also right to have a single life if God grants this as a as a special calling to any individual, this is a perfectly honorable way of life. Marriage is not a necessity, though it often is an advantage, and yet it can be a, uh, a problem. And he deals very thoughtfully and helpfully and carefully on this whole question of marriage. Then they wrote to him about certain doubtful things that were troubling them. Largely in the church at Corinth, it was three things. They were worried about offending God and about offending the conscience of a weaker brother in the matter of eating meat that was offered to idols. And as you read this section, although we no longer are troubled by 
the problem of whether we ought to eat meat offered to idols or not. At least I don't think we are. Have any of you had a problem along that line? <laughs> Nevertheless, you can see that in this section we're confronting in principle all this whole thorny issue of Christian taboos. Smoking, drinking, dancing, everything that has ever been brought up as a problem within the church that's not specifically identified as a evil in the scriptures falls into this category. What do you do about it? What about this matter of offending others who might be, who might see you do something wrong? And, uh, uh, how far do you go in these areas? Now it's most interesting that though the, Paul was an apostle with the authority of an apostle, he absolutely refused to make out any rules along this line. This is because the, uh, the weak, immature Christian always wants somebody to put them under law. But if you put a Christian under law, then he's no longer under grace. And Paul knows that the Christians must learn to deal with what he calls in this section the law of liberty. The fact that all things are right. Nothing is wrong in itself. The devil never made any of the of the uh, capabilities and capacities that are in the human being. God made them all. And no urge or desire or, or uh, uh, tendency is wrong in itself. We are at liberty in these things. But with this, he links two other laws, which he calls the law of, of uh, love. That is, the law that says, I may be free to do it, but if I really am putting a stumbling block in somebody else's path, I won't do it. That's the law of love. The limitation that comes not by my conscience, but by another's conscience. And furthermore, the law of expediency. That is, everything he says is legal, is lawful, but not everything's helpful. There are a lot of things I could do, and there's many directions I can go as a Christian. But if I spend all my time doing all the things that I'm free to do, I no longer have any time to do that which I'm called to do. And therefore, it's not always helpful. And these things can be a waste of time even though they're not wrong in themselves. That's what Hebrews calls the weights. As the writer says, lay aside every, every weight and the sin which does so easily beset you. These things that just drag us back. And facing these then, we must individually settle these matters for ourselves under the admonition of the apostle, blessed is he who is not condemned in that which he alloweth. And then they wrote also about women. Women were a problem in the church at Corinth, too. And uh, well, I didn't mean anything bad by that. But they were, because there, again, they were involved in a very difficult problem about hats. Now, this had peculiar local overtones about it. If a woman was seen bareheaded in Corinth, 
she was immediately identified as a prostitute, as one of the temple priestesses. And that's why Paul writes to these people in Corinth and says, you ladies, when you come to church, put a hat on, because it's a sign that you're a Christian woman subject to your husband. Now, in principle, in practice, you see, that applied to Corinth. In principle, the principle applies all the time. Christian women are to be in subjection to their own husbands, as you see all through the scriptures, in every way, as an indication and a sign of the same subjection which the church has for its Lord. And the, the Christian woman fulfills her ministry to her Lord in her subjectiveness to her husband. And all this is involved in this problem of headship which the Apostle defines as equality, cooperation, and yet submission. Now, there's much we could say on this, but uh, you study it out for yourself. Then the fourth problem was that concerning the Lord's table. And they were having difficulties there because there were certain ones who were eating this in a mechanical, perfunctory way, not seeing any meaning or insight in what they were doing. And so the apostle has to deal with this problem and show them that everything that the Christian does must be done uh, realistically and with a recognition that it's done as unto the Lord. Now in chapter 12 through the rest of the book, you, he's dealing with the great spiritualities, the correction to these carnalities. You don't correct these things by just trying to straighten yourself out. How do you correct them? Well, first, by a recognition of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. And that's why chapter 12 begins with that very word. Now, concerning the spiritualities. It's translated spiritual gifts here, but it's actually one word. The spiritualities, brethren. I do not want you to be uninformed. Why not? Well, because this is what makes life work. And he goes on to explain the presence of the Spirit that makes Christ real to us, the gifts of the Spirit that are designed to make the body function and reach out and perform its work of touching society on every side. And here again, we've missed so much of the great richness of the provision of Christ for his church. We know so little about the gifts of the Spirit. What's your gift? Do you know? And where are you using it? Are you putting it to work? Or do you need Paul's admonition to Timothy, stir up the gift that is in you, which was given unto you? The body functions by the exercise of its gift. And every Christian has a gift, at least one, and they're different gifts. We don't all have the same. Wouldn't it be awful if everyone in the church was like me? Or even worse, like you? But God has set different gifts within the body. And we all function as these gifts are put to work. Therefore, this is a beautiful chapter showing us that we must not despise another because of a different gift. The eye cannot say to the foot, I have no need of you. Nor must we uh, neglect the gift that has been given unto us. It's all necessary. Even the head cannot op properly operate without the foot. Think of that. The head is Christ. 
himself. And yet we're all members one of another. And so as the body of Christ, we fulfill our functions both in the church to our, to the body itself and to the world through the exercise of spiritual gifts in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the proof of it that we've learned this secret will be what's set forth in chapter 13. You know what that is. Love. The manifestation of love. This is a wonderful chapter. I wish I could spend time on it completely tonight because it sets forth for us the value of love and the portrait of love and the power of love. And then in chapter 14, he takes up another problem that was causing confusion in the church, the misuse of one of the gifts, the gift of tongues, and the presence of a false gift of tongues that was at work in that church as it is at work in in our society today, and the correction for these abuses. And he tries to focus the whole attent- uh, uh, the whole weight of this uh, section on the importance of the gift of prophecy. It's always amazing to me to see how many read this chapter 14 and miss entirely the apostle's point. The whole purpose of the chapter is that we be we start talking about the gift of prophecy and emphasizing it and urging it upon others and encouraging people, those who have it, to exercise it. But you hardly ever hear anything about that. It's all tongues, isn't it? Yet he was trying to play down the gift of tongues and play up the gift of prophecy. Now, the gift of prophecy is simply the ability to explain and expound the scriptures, to speak comfort and edification and encouragement from the scriptures. Well, that brings us to chapter 15 with its great emphasis on the resurrection. What would any of these things be worth if we did not have a living Christ to make them real? The resurrection is the great pivot for the whole of the Christian faith. Everything comes back to that. If Jesus Christ did not was not raised from the dead, then as the apostle says in this chapter, we're, we're hopeless. And not only that, we're the most, we are the most to be pitied of all people. We're nuts. We're fools. We ought to be locked up somewhere if Christ be not risen from the dead. But what a triumphant, uh, uh, pian of proof and praise is in this chapter concerning the resurrection. And he closes it with what is his whole point. Everything in this, in this whole letter comes right down to this one verse. And I want to close with that tonight. Verse 58 of chapter 15. Therefore, therefore, my brethren, my beloved brethren, because of all that he said up to this point, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Chapter 16 is just a postscript in which he catches up certain little things that the church needed to know, very important to us. But he comes back to this theme again in verse 13. Be watchful, stand firm in your faith, be courageous, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. And you've got the equipment to do it with. Now do it. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed in prayer. Thank <laughs> you.
Our Father, we thank you that we who live also in a sex-saturated society, given over to the love of wisdom and intellectualism, have in Jesus Christ, in the word of the cross, everything that it takes to meet the pressures that come upon us in this day. There is no reason for failure. And so, Lord, we pray that we may learn more about these great themes and discover the exciting uh, fascination of every day living on this level and in these terms, and thus discovering the adventure that you've intended life to be. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.